Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church, wherever you're joining us from as you watch, whether it's this morning, Sunday, live as we're streaming or a time a little later on. It is so good to be with you, so good to be seen by you, and we just want to welcome you to our church this morning. Um, we are thrilled that it is a season right now of where things are reopening and things are coming back together. Right now, if you're watching this live, we also have services happening in our building, which is such a gift. We are so excited about that. And we are thrilled to welcome you wherever you're at, whether it is online, whether you're going to join us in person for a service as we reopen, as we figure things out. We're just excited to have you connected with us. And if you're checking us out for the first time or if it's the first time in a while, um, you'll know or need to know that we've been going through a series in the book of Philippians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi. And what we've been doing is looking at this series called Imitate because what it's been all about is what does it mean for you and for me, whether it's COVID, whether it's post-COVID, whether it's somewhere in this weird squishy middle, what does it mean for you and I to follow Jesus, to imitate Jesus, to become like Jesus? And today we're going to hop into this passage. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 1, right around those first few verses of the book, or you can open your phone or whatever that may be. What we're going to see here at the halfway point as we shift into the final two chapters of this book, of this series, of this letter that Paul wrote, is a bit of a shift in tone and a shift in the tenor of what Paul is writing about. Up to this point, there's kind of been two main things that Paul has done. He's given them an update, right? He's let them know, here's what's going on. Here's where I'm at. I'm in prison. This is what it looks like. We looked at those verses. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I don't really know what's going to happen. It's a, it's kind of a practical update of here's where I'm at. Here's what's going on. Here's what you need to know about me and Timothy and Epaphroditus and all these types of things. But also we've seen Paul break down again and again, this idea of what it means to rejoice and how Jesus, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done, and the nature of Jesus himself in Philippians 2, we actually see what it looks like to follow Jesus and to imitate Jesus and the outpouring of that, what Jesus is like, what that means for us. So not only does Paul write practically, he's also written theologically up to this point. And so he opens the second half of the letter with these words, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Quick pause there. If you're ever annoyed, if Jonathan or myself says, hey, last point or finally, or we're just about to wrap up here and then we go for another 20 minutes, don't be mad at us. We learn this practice from the Apostle Paul who says, finally, my brothers, when he's only halfway through the letter to the Philippians. So don't be annoyed at us. We learned it from the Apostle Paul. Take it up with him when we get to heaven. Paul's being repetitive here though. He's actually very clear about how repetitive he's being. He's saying, hey, it's no problem for me to write the same things to you. It's actually no trouble for me and it's safe for you. And what is the thing that Paul's repeating? He's repeating that they need to rejoice in the Lord. But why is Paul repeating that? Why is Paul actually saying, we need to repeat this again? I need to repeat this again. You need to hear this again because Paul knows what I think we all know deep down is it's really easy to forget what we've been taught or what we've learned or what's important, even if it matters to us, right? 
Most studies would look at uh, any form of teaching, whether it's a sermon like this on a Sunday or in whatever context it might be, or teaching in a school setting uh, or at a conference, a speaker or anything like that. About five to 10 minutes after that message, after that speech, after that teaching is done, most people would retain about 50% uh, of what has been said. That's not bad, right? Here's the problem. 48 hours later, those same studies would show that you'll be lucky to remember 20 to 25% of what was said or what was taught, even if you resonated with it and said it was something that was helpful. Those same studies would point to the fact that we are forgetful. We don't remember everything. We don't always, uh, we resonate with something, but then we forget it. If you ever had a moment like me, I've gone to my small group um, and I will have walked in and what we do, I don't know about your small group, but for us, we often go, hey, did everybody make it to church? Did everybody get a chance to watch church? And and you're probably the same way, right? And what happens is, oh yeah, it was so good and the worship was awesome and and, oh, so amazing. And then this question gets asked and right now Jalisa and I are leading a small group. So we'll ask, So what stuck out about the sermon? Or what do you remember about the sermon? Or does anyone remember what the sermon was about? And no shame here, but most faces go pretty blank. Even if we were there on Sunday and we resonated with the message and we went, wow, that was so powerful. Wow, that's how it impacted my life. It takes us a little bit of time to get the wheels turning and to remember what was said because we're forgetful. There's no shame in that. That's just a reality of being human. Yes, I was at church, but I can't fully remember only a couple days later. I remember when I was first starting out in ministry and learning what it looks like to communicate like this. Uh, I didn't learn on a camera. I didn't learn in COVID. I didn't even learn with adults. Where I learned to speak to people was actually with junior youth students, grade five to seven students in Salmon Arm, where I started in ministry. And I remember my mentor Colby had this thing where I wasn't allowed to give a message until I could give him a one sentence description of what the big idea was of what I was trying to communicate, what truth about Jesus I wanted kids to walk away with. And I remember being frustrated. I was like, well, I need three points or I need this or I need that or what about this? And how do I tie this in? And how do I get the whole whatever? And he would say, no, 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 they're only gonna remember one thing. And so as he gave me that practice, we also had a little game we like to play after I spoke at junior youth. And if you've ever spoken in front of junior youth, you know, junior youth are relentless. Everything you wish you could say out loud when Jonathan or I are preaching, junior youth students will say out loud if they're bored, if they're tired, if they're ready to go. But we play this game after I spoke. And we'd go up to some students or a small group or whoever it was, and Colby and I would stand there and Colby would say, hey guys, what was Dan's message about? And the goal of that game was really to see what was the one main thing? What was the one main thing? Did my big idea, did my main point that I wanted people to know, did that get remembered? Or was it like, well, he talked a little bit about God and a little bit about Jesus and a little bit about that. No, no, no. What was the one thing? That was the goal. And Paul understands this. Paul gets this. He wants them to understand the one thing. And what is Paul's letter about? What is the letter of the Philippians all about? If Paul has one idea, one concept, one thing that he's like, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to know. I think it's captured in this verse right here. He says, rejoice in the Lord. See, as we go through this series, as we look at imitate and what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and all those things, it can get really complicated and confusing and we can get ourselves overwhelmed. I have to do this practice and I have to try this thing and I have to serve in this way. But here's the thing. Here's the one thing Paul wants you to do. Rejoice in the Lord. 
That's what this whole letter's about. But here in chapter three, we see the tone of that command, that big idea shift a little bit. And I think it's really, really interesting because most of the front half of Philippians, Philippians is a little bit of like one of those like flowery books, right? We've got all these verses and oh, it's about joy and rejoice. And, and most of us know that that's a major theme in the book, right? And you've got these beautiful verses where Paul's like, oh, I, I give praise to God every time I think of you. You guys are so awesome. I love you so much. You're doing so good. It's this really beautiful kind of a affectionate love. And if you read 1 Corinthians or Galatians, you know Paul is not always affectionate like that. But in this letter, he seems to be until we come to this point in chapter three. All of a sudden, Paul's call to rejoice in the Lord actually comes with some qualifiers or some warnings. Here's what he says in verse two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Whoa. <laughs> I thought we were like hugging. Everything was great. It was a celebration. It was a potluck type thing. And now Paul's got this like explosive, angry language. And if you've been around church for a while, that might get lost a little bit in translation. But here's the thing. Paul's being aggressive there. He's angry. He's ticked off. He's saying, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And, and what you need to understand is the history behind this is Paul's actually speaking about a specific group of people who had been challenging him historically as he planted churches and led people to the gospel. Well, the first time we hear of these people who would be called the circumcision party or the Judaizers show up in Acts 15, chapter one. Here's what it says about them. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch where people had just come to know Jesus and they were teaching the new believers Unless you are circumcised, which is a physical act from the Old Testament uh, as a symbol of their faithfulness to Yahweh, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So what they were doing is they were coming to new believers, to Gentiles who had come to Christ, which we see in the book of Acts. God is all for, God is for all peoples coming to know Jesus. And they're saying, yeah, but you got to do this too. Jesus is great, but... He's not all of it. Jesus is a good step one. Jesus plus this. And Paul's response to them, if you want to see how angry he gets, here's what he writes in Galatians chapter one about this group of people. But even if we or an angel from heaven, Paul writes, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have already preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, as if Paul's saying, did I stutter? Let me be clear here. If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to the one that I have preached to you, which is salvation through Jesus and faith in him alone, anyone preaches a gospel contrary to that, let him be accursed, which literally we could translate, let him go to hell. Paul is not interested in nicety. Paul is not interested in lighthearted debate on this. He's saying, no, 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 this is important. And it makes me angry, really angry when people start adding stuff onto the gospel of grace. But I think this is anger that's different than your anger or my anger sometimes, right? Sometimes when I get angry, it's usually about myself. It's about what I want. It's about my comfort. It's about my whatever it may be. I'm grumpy because I didn't get what I want or it wasn't convenient for me. But Paul here, just like Jesus before him, does get angry, but he gets angry on behalf of others. And there's something beautiful about anger on behalf of others, isn't there? My wife, Jalisa, is my favorite person in the world. She's about a foot and a half shorter than me. She's like this tiny little thing next to me you see in photos. But here's the deal. 
There's no one I'd rather have at my back, at my side, if someone was to come at me, whether it was verbally or even physically, the way she gets riled up and, and powerful and passionate about defending the people that she loves and not just me, but her small group of students or the friends that she cares deeply about or her family, the way that she gets angry on behalf of other people, not just for herself, but for others is what gospel-centered anger can look like. Jesus got angry, Paul got angry, but it was always, always, always for the sake of others. And why does Paul get angry? Because he knows that what is happening here is that when things get added to the gospel, and that is what is happening, it is Jesus plus circumcision, they've made the gospel something that it's not. And for us in our day, in our age, that's not an issue in our church. I have not had any emails about Jesus plus circumcision. But here's the problem. Jesus plus anything is a gospel contrary to the, the gospel of grace. That is Jesus plus nothing. Anything in addition to Jesus that mean, that makes it so that you can be saved is not the gospel. Jesus and faith in him and him alone is what saves us. That is what we believe at our church. That is what the church has believed for 2,000 years. That is what Paul is fighting for here. Jesus plus a worship style. Jesus plus a clothing choice. Jesus plus a certain Bible translation. Jesus plus plus a secondary theological issue that is a hill that you want to die on, is not the gospel. Jesus dying on a cross for our sins, raising from the dead, bringing us new life through the Holy Spirit, that is the gospel. And that is by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. And Paul will not have it any other way because if it is any other way, it creates something different. It creates something different than the freedom and the joy that Paul is talking about in Philippians. What does it create? A burden, a weight on our shoulders. Here's how Jesus explains it in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. And so do and observe whatever they tell you, but, do, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard or impossible in some translations to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their fingers. They do all their deeds. Why? To be seen by others. They put burdens, they put weights on people's back. And I don't know about you, but I feel that in my face sometimes. Whether anybody says it to me or not, I just feel a burden and a weight in my faith. My counselor will often ask me when I'm in a session, where do you feel the tension? In my shoulders, in my back, and oh my goodness, this weight of trying to follow Jesus and do it right and obey him and, and not mess up and not let people down and all those kind of things. In the last couple of weeks, there's been so many changes and Jaleesa started a new job and we've got all these transitions and I'm tired and I'm exhausted. And I looked at her the other day and I was like, Jaleesa, I just can't do it. There's too much on my back. There's too much weighing me down. There's too much to do. There's too much to figure out. There's too many issues to solve. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And God looks at those of us who are in a place where we are burnt out and say, we can't do it and says, I know. And I love you in that place. That is the gospel of Jesus. We say, I just can't do it. And God looks at us and says, I know but you're my beloved child and I know you can't do it. So I've done it on your behalf. See, in our culture, 
and in the nature of the Judaizers and, and legalistic religion, and, and even sometimes within ourselves, going back to Genesis 3, where, where the serpent said, well, did God really say, maybe you can handle it on your own. Maybe you're fine without God. Maybe you can handle it. Our culture, everything would say that if you work hard enough, if you pray hard enough, if you just do enough, you can handle it. Put your head down and push through. That's why Paul is so angry here because the circumcision party is saying, you got this. Jesus is great. I'm glad he makes you feel better. That's so cute. But you better do the right stuff if you want to be saved. You better be a good enough person. You better follow enough religious rules. You better have your life in order. You better not be messy. You better not let anyone know about your sin or your struggle or your anxiety or whatever it may be. And Paul is saying that will not do because following Jesus brings us joy, not burden. The message of Philippians is that following Jesus brings us joy, not a burden. And so Paul calls them out. He says, you're dogs which in that time was actually a derogatory term used by Jewish people in reference to Gentiles who would be considered unclean. Because I'm not talking about like your pet dog who you love and you invest money into and take for walks and all those things. No, no, I'm talking about like coyotes, hyenas. That was the view of dogs. Unclean, derogatory term. Paul calls them evildoers. He calls them mutilators, which is the same word. If you go back to the Old Testament and read about Elijah, a prophet who comes as, as a prophet of God against the prophets of Baal, who is a false god, and they have a competition, right? God versus God, who's going to win? And Elijah ends up calling down fire. But before he does, the prophets of Baal try to get their God to call down fire on the altar to win this competition. But it's not working. And Elijah's ripping into them and he's saying, well, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's um, not listening. Maybe he's in the bathroom. I don't know what's going on. And so they start cutting themselves because in false religion, you need to give your blood to God to get your God to bless you. But here's the thing with the gospel. False gods want your blood sacrificed to save you. Our God shed his blood for you. Jesus doesn't ask for your blood. He gave his blood for you. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. That's what Paul wants us to see. Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul talks about this circumcision issue very directly. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man. It's not from outward appearances, but it's from God. But see, the problem is we can drift so easily. We can drift so easily into that kind of attitude. We meet Jesus. We experience his grace. We have a profound moment where the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we've accepted Jesus and it changes everything. But slowly we start to go, well, maybe I need to get that together. And why haven't I gotten over that sin pattern yet? And why can't I figure out this? And why do I still feel anxious? And why do I still struggle with depression or this addiction? Or why am I still angry all the time or whatever it may be? Here's how Eugene Peterson describes the slow drift into this kind of religiosity and this kind of legalism. Here's what he says. Just listen along. It's a long quote, but it's well worth the listen. Imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture window, overlooking a grand view across a wide expanse of water. It's enclosed by a range of snow-capped mountains. You have a ringside seat before wild storms and cloud formations, the entire spectrum of sun-illuminated colors in the rocks and the trees and the wildflowers in the water. You're captivated by the view. 
Several times a day, you'll interrupt your work and just stand before this window to take in the majesty and the beauty thrilled with the botanical fireworks. One afternoon, you notice some bird droppings on the window glass. So you get a bucket of water and a towel and you clean it up. A couple of days later, a large rainstorm leaves the windows streaked and messy, and so the bucket comes out again. Another day, visitors come over with a tribe of small and dirty-fingered children. The moment they leave, you see all the smudge marks on the glass. They're hardly out of the door before you have that bucket out. You are so proud of your window and its view, but it is such a large window And it is incredible how many different ways foreign objects and dirt attach themselves to that window, obscuring the vision, distracting from the contemplative beauty. Keeping that window clean develops into an obsessive, compulsive neurosis. You accumulate ladders and buckets and squeegees. You construct scaffolding inside and outside to make it possible to get to all the different corners and heights of that window. You have the cleanest window in all of North America, but you realized it's been years since you've looked through it. It's been years since you've gazed through that windows and you've become a Pharisee. See, this is what happens when we lose our grip on the gospel of grace. When we forget to remember that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing else, not circumcision, not good works, not what we bring to the table, not good behavior, not anything. This is what happens. But the second we or somebody else in our lives starts adding on to-dos and instructions that Jesus didn't give us, we build up a wall. We surround ourselves with spiritual bubble wrap because we don't want ourselves to break. We put up warning signs but we miss out on the life that Jesus has for us. So let me ask you, Christian, whether for a year or for 30, when was the last time you gazed out the window at the beauty of God's grace? Accept the dirt stains as they are, put away the squeegee, put away the bucket, tear down the scaffolding, and just look through that window. Gazed at the beauty of the love that Jesus has for you that would lay down his life. When was the last time? It wasn't about fixing a problem. It wasn't about getting over something. It wasn't about fixing somebody else. It was just about beholding the beauty of Jesus. Because Paul says that's what matters anyway. Back in the passage, verse three, he says these insults to the Judaizers. And he says, for we, you and I are the circumcision. We who worship by the spirit of God and glory or boast in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's what you need to know today, whether you are a Christian or not yet a Christian. It is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the object of your faith. The strength of your faith in Jesus will not get you to heaven, but what Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the way that Jesus loves and pursues and gives his life for you, that is what restores our relationship to God. That is what Paul boldly proclaims. And he says religious activity means nothing in the presence of true circumcision. True circumcision isn't an act with scissors. It's a work of Jesus in our lives, in our hearts to transform us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And it's been that way all along, even in the Old Testament. All the way through the Old Testament, we see God, we see Yahweh proclaiming again and again, circumcision was a sign of what was meant to be done in people's hearts. In Ezekiel 36, 26, the prophet writes, 
of the voice of God, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. It's a complete reversal, a complete change of our identity and that's what Paul says matters. He says, what matters is that the truly circumcised worship by the spirit of God. And what that means is those who follow Jesus have the spirit of God living within them. The moment you came to believe that Jesus was Lord, that he died and rose again, if you have made that decision in your life, you receive the Holy Spirit who lives and works and convicts and comforts in your life right now, today. Not just at one moment in salvation, not just at special times at church or a conference, every moment of every day. So the question is, is the spirit at work in your life? Are you attuned to the voice of the Holy Spirit and what he's telling you to do through the word of God, through the prayers of the saints around you? Secondly, Paul says, we are those who boast in Jesus Christ. Here's my question for you. Who's the hero of your stories? Who gets to be the hero? Is it about how you got through a hard season? Is it about how you gritted down and handled it and made it happen even though it was hard? Or do you boast in Jesus? and his grace for you when you win and when you lose, when you succeed and when you fail, when everything's great and when everything's awful. Who gets to be the hero of your story? And thirdly, Paul says, we are the truly circumcised, those who will put no confidence in the flesh. Who put no confidence in the flesh. How do you respond when you fail? I think Brennan Manning, who wrote the book Ragamuffin Gospel, captures this so beautifully when he writes this, that should be true of all who follow Jesus. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved and yet I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. That is how grace works. That is how it's supposed to work. Is that you today? Is your deepest awareness of yourself that you are loved by Jesus and you haven't earned it? Or is it some mix of, yeah, Jesus loves me and forgives me, but I better get my stuff together. Yeah, Jesus accepts me as I am, but if I'm not better soon enough, maybe he'll give up on me. Yeah, Jesus loves me, but only when I'm not sinning, only when I'm doing well. No, let the deepest awareness of you be that you are loved. Thomas Merton puts it this way, a saint is not a person who is good, but a person who has experienced the goodness of God. A saint is not a person who is good, but one who has experienced the goodness of God. And Paul is saying, Paul is so fired up because this is what's most important. If we don't get this, the rest doesn't matter. Following Jesus, spiritual practices, fruit of the Holy Spirit, all the stuff we've talked about, all the stuff that it means to imitate Jesus, to be a disciple of his. It doesn't matter if we don't get this right because if we don't get grace right, it's just a burden. It's just tension and pain and stress and fear and anxiety. And Paul is saying, this is so important. And why is Paul so fired up and passionate about this because it's his story. He knows it. It's his own testimony. He's frustrated with religiosity and legalism and the Judaizers coming at him because he can look back and see in his own history that you can read about in the book of Acts. Here's what he writes. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. See, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's saying, hey, 
I know my history. Let me tell you about it. So some context, the Judaizers, the circumcision party, they've been calling Paul out. This is a debate that's been happening over months and years. This has been an issue in the early church all the way along. They've been smack talking him. Paul takes some shots at them in the Galatians or in Romans or whatever it may be. They're going back and forth, but it's not a 24-hour news cycle. They don't have Instagram. They can't text each other. It takes some time. And so Paul hears that the circumcision party is taking shots at Paul. And what they're saying is, well, Paul's saying it's just Jesus. It's just grace. But maybe that's just because Paul can't handle it. Maybe Paul's too weak. Maybe he can't handle the law. Maybe he can't handle the circumcision rules. Maybe he can't handle what God wants for people. Maybe he's just too weak. And Paul goes, oh, oh, is that what you think is the problem? Okay, well, let's play a little game called who's more Jewish. And so he goes on with what can only be described as like a distract from biblical times. And here's what Paul says with a little note on each, starting in verse five. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in their flesh, I have more. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day, which based on the Abrahamic covenant from the Old Testament meant that Jewish children would be circumcised on the eighth day of being alive. So what he's saying there is that he's no bandwagoner. He's no bandwagoner to the Jewish faith. He's been in since day one. His mom and dad did the right stuff. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. Again, I'm no bandwagoner. I've been in all the way along. I have the right bloodline. I have the right skin tone. I have the right hometown. If you want to play the game of who's more Jewish, I'm as Israel as Israel can be. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin is the only son of Israel that was born in the promised land. It's one of the most faithful tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And Paul's previous name before he came to know Jesus was Saul who was the first king of Israel. Even his name that his parents gave him proves how much he is an insider in the Jewish bloodline. And then he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. See, by that time, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years after the Abrahamic covenant, most of the Jewish Hebrew people no longer spoke the Hebrew language. They spoke Greek because Greek was the main language of the era. But, But what he's saying is, no, 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 no. I read the Bible in the original languages. I got trained. I'm one of the originals. I'm not a sellout. I'm not some phony. I'm not some fake. I'm not just playing the game. I was all the way in on this thing. And then he carries on and he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, which we look at now as like being a hypocrite or whatever. But back then, a Pharisee was someone who took seriously the commands of Yahweh. I do the right things. I play by the rules. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. Verse six, as the zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As far as passion goes, nobody can best Paul. If you read Acts 7, he was the one who is leading the charge against Jesus and his people on behalf of what he thought was God's will as to righteousness under the law, blameless. My life looked good and my life was good. There was no scandal. There was no shame. There was no personal struggle. There was no thing you could call me out on. When people looked at me, they said, wow, that's what faith is supposed to look like. Paul's list is epic, but it really does break down into two categories that I think you and I need to be careful of even today. One is his history, right? He says, I circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul came from the right family. And it is an amazing gift to be born into and raised up in a church family and a family where God's name is made much of. But I need you to know today that your parents' faith is not your faith. 
that your relationship with Jesus is not based on how much you went to Sunday school. It is not based on whether your parents are members of a church or whether you went to church as a kid. Your faith is based on your relationship with Jesus. Being part of the right family or having the correct color of skin or speaking the right language or reading the right Bible translation or only listening to this kind of preacher because he gets this particular thing about the rapture or whatever else it may be, right? Or he gets this kind of thing about spiritual gifts and tongues or whatever. All those things do not make you a Christian. Your history does not make you a Christian. And secondly, activity. Paul says he's blameless. He was doing all the right stuff. But at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus leaves us with some of his most ominous words for those who did all the right stuff. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Did we not, Jesus? Did we not serve in the nursery? Did we not tithe? Did we not go to Bible study? Did we not buy Christian books? Did we not support Christian missionaries? Did we not show up and volunteer? Did we not read our Bible every day? Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? And Jesus' response was, you never knew me. That's a scary, ominous thought. We must get the order right. Obedience to Jesus is not what saves us. Tim Keller puts it this way. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted and therefore I obey. The order changes everything. We don't just need a theology of Jesus. We need the person of Jesus. You don't just need to believe the right things about Jesus. You need to have an encounter with the living God who gave his life for you. My friends, that is the call of the gospel. That is the grace that we experience. And how do we get this order right? Well, Paul concludes his thought with a sort of mic drop moment that, that Jonathan's gonna flesh out a little more next week. His list of accomplishment after accomplishment, his list of being a part of the right family, of doing the right things, of all these sorts of things. A resume masterclass on how to be religious, how to be good, how to be upright, how to be religious, all these things. But what is Paul's conclusion at the end of this list? Whatever gain I had, and this is a long list of gains, whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. Every gain I had, I count as lost for the sake of Jesus Christ. Paul views the Judaizers the same way I view Monopoly. He sees the game and he says, yeah, I could maybe beat you at your game, but I refuse to play your game because it's a stupid game. Monopoly is a bad game. Don't play it. Play a different board game. But here's the deal. Paul's saying, I could beat you at your game, but I'm not interested in playing. It's not the right game. It's not the right measurement. It's not the right plan. What we need is the gospel of grace, not a religious order that tries to get us into heaven based on our works. Paul looks at all that stands as his own righteousness and says it's wasted if he doesn't do it for Jesus. 
It's wasted if it's not for the sake of Christ. His history, his activity, his Bible studies, his knowledge, his prayers, his leadership, it does not matter if it's not for the sake of Christ. And that is just as true for you and for I. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of people trying to to find something other than God that will make them happy. Doing things for Jesus cannot replace the grace and peace and joy that comes from resting in Jesus. We cannot do for unless we have rested and felt the grace of in Jesus. And my friends, as we close today, what you need to know is that frees us up. Paul's going to go on in this letter to talk about what it looks like to press on to the knowledge of Jesus and the ministry that he's called to and what it looks like for the Philippian church to carry on, to not let these dogs, these evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh get in their way because they have more to do that Jesus is calling them to. But it's not because that's what's going to save them. It's because they've already been saved and transformed by Jesus himself. And it frees them up to just like John the Baptist make the statement, he must become greater, I must become less. Jesus must become greater, I must become less because it's not about me. My friend, can I release you from the burden? It's not about you. Your faith in Jesus is about what Jesus has done for you, not what you can do for Jesus. God's okay. Take that weight off your shoulder, release that tension and know that you are loved unconditionally by the savior of the world. And then we can serve and we can love and we can give, not from a place of needing to be saved or needing to be right or needing to be good enough, but from a place of knowing that all that has already been taken care of at the foot of the cross. And that the resurrected Jesus stands right now interceding on our behalf before the Father. And we're going to show you a video here about a building campaign that we're going to start. The outside is almost done. We're going to look at what it means to the inside. And what it means that we would count it all lost for the sake of Christ is that a campaign like this, renovating the outside of our building, putting lights out so it's safer, getting stuff set up to have a youth ministry in here, it's not about us. It's not about our comfort and our pleasure and what I like about church and what I think the church should do and what I, what I, what I, what I want, what I want, what I want. No, no, no. The gospel of grace frees us up to say it's about somebody else. It's about someone else. We can release that pressure. So I want to pray for you today as we close and as we roll out some amazing, incredible, exciting stuff about where we're headed. But as we do that, I encourage you to remember that whatever we count as gain, whether it's a building expansion or a promotion at work or a good week or coming out of COVID, whatever it is, is wasted if it's not for the sake of Christ. Let me pray as we close today. Dear Jesus, we love you. We worship you. And we thank you, God, that you give us joy. That the invitation to follow you is not one that is meant to be burdensome. It's not meant to be heavy laden. But rather, God, it's an invitation to find rest in you. And in that rest, Jesus, we find joy. And so, Lord, as we close today, we ask that you would help us to, like Paul, count whatever gain in our life as loss for sake of knowing you. 
God, would we press on towards the goal, as Paul's going to write in a few verses, about what it looks like to pursue, to know, to experience you, Jesus. Would we serve and give and love and act and volunteer and whatever else it may be out of what you've already accomplished for us on the cross? Jesus, we love you. We give you our lives today. And we thank you that you already gave your life for us. We love you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.